tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. We continue with the story of King David, who, boy, he had quite a life. But let's pray. We'll we'll jump into that deep end of the pool in a minute. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them in the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let's let's open. You know, yes, you got it, the big book on the coffee table. Where'd I put it? Where'd I put it? Here. Let's go to the gospel first. Um, this is a fascinating gospel. Uh, well, they, they all are. Uh, this is uh, kind of odd because it describes Jesus um, going to the house of a synagogue official, and it's interrupted by a woman with a hemorrhage. And then it goes back to the story about the synagogue official and his daughter. So they're they're jammed together for a reason. They happen together. Uh, for a reason, and I, I, I believe I have no problem thinking this is what happened and how it happened, and God does things in our life that then turn out to have meaning, and so I, I don't know that this is just an artistic uh, sort of construction. I think this is history. Well, why not? All right, this is Mark the fifth chapter, the twenty-first verse and following. Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. Now, where had he been? I think that that's important. Remember, this is the Gerizines, and uh, uh, he's there, and he, he uh, casts out the demon who is legion, which is like 6,000 demons, and uh, the pigs jump into the lake. And we talked about that yesterday, and I don't particularly want to talk about it again today, but we'll go back to the reading here. So he crosses again in the boat, and he comes to the Jewish side. And there's a, he was on the Greek side of the lake, and now he's on the Jewish side of the lake. A large crowd gathered around him, and he stayed close to the sea. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus, uh, they, had, they had a whole synagogue structure that was parallel. Now remember, synagogues are not biblical in the Old Testament sense. There is nothing about synagogues in the Old Testament. A synagogue probably was a... Uh, a way to be an Israelite, a Jew, 
without the temple and probably originated in Babylon. I mean, you got to go to the temple three times a year. Well, if you don't do that, how are you going to maintain your, your, your Israeliteness? And, uh, well, the synagogue was a place and it just means a synagogue means a meeting place or a, 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 a place to come together. That's all it means. And you can be a perfectly good Jew and never darken the door of a synagogue. Now, that would be rather unusual, but it, it technically it's quite possible. The synagogue does not appear in the Old Testament, but it does appear in the New Testament. So they developed this structure uh, for governing the synagogue. And there was somebody called uh, the, the Archi, I think it's Archi Synagogus. It's the, 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 the leader of the synagogue. And you still have uh, modern times, you have the board, and the president, and all this sort of thing. And this, oh, one of these officials named Jairus comes to plead with Jesus. My daughter is, is dying. Come and lay hands on her that she may get well and live. This is very significant. At one point, Jesus was actually excommunicated from the synagogue. He couldn't go into the synagogues. He was forbidden. And, I, you know, it's hard to say if this is before or after that, that, ex, that, that uh, um, excommunication, we would call it. Uh, but Jairus being an official in the synagogue was taking a big risk. But, you know, you do that. When you got a sick kid, you know what's important. Your reputation isn't important. Nothing's as important as, as, as that sick child, if you're a normal person. Well, he went off with him. A large crowd followed him. They portray this very beautifully, I think, in uh, uh, what's, what's the series, Dear Voice in My Head, that's currently popular? The, the Chosen. Chosen. The Chosen. The Chosen, yes. And, well, there's a woman afflicted with a hemorrhage for 12 years. Uh, she'd suffered at the, at the hands of many doctors. Now, there is a later story about this woman that's told in Eusebius of Caesarea's uh, uh, history of the church, his ecclesiastical history. I think I got, I got it from Eusebius. Um, that this woman was actually a Greek, a Greek speaker from the coast uh, from Caesarea, which was a town built by Herod, which is a very Greco-Roman town. It was an honor of the Caesars and had pagan temples and, you know, hippodromes, you know, horse tracks and well, theaters and all that. Uh, and she was from there, according to what I read. And her name was Berenike. And she was so grateful that she'd been healed that she went and had a statue of Jesus made. Now, if this happened, I don't know. This is, you know... Uh, reported a couple centuries after Christ, but eh, could have happened. But it's interesting, the story of Berenike, the woman cured uh, of the hemorrhage, conf conflates with the story of Veronica, which seems to be a sort of uh, uh, rendering of the word a true image, a vera icona. And now, I'm going to say something that's really going to upset people. Take a deep breath and stay calm. The Stations of the Cross are a very late tradition. I personally think that they reflect real history, but there may be some relationship between this Berenike and Veronica, and it's kind of interesting. I think the Chosen kind of talks about that a little. I think her name is Berenike, Bernice. Well, let's move along. I, You know, again, I wasn't there. I don't know if it happened or didn't happen. But there is this possible conflation of Veronica 
and the woman with the hemorrhage. Now, she's a, she's a non-Jewish woman. She has a hemorrhage. And she'd heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. We read, I think it is in the book of Malachi, about the Messiah, that there will be healing in his wings. You can hear me clicking away in that. Yeah, that's Malachi, the fourth chapter, the second verse. There will be healing in his wings. I've shared with you that Hebrew is a vocabulary poor word. The wings of a garment were its, 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 its hem, its, its, its edge. You know, garments had wings. So the, there'll be healing in the hem of the, uh, of, of the Messiah. Well, what's on the hem of a Jewish person's garment? Tassels that represent the law. So Jesus wore the, the they call them the tzitzit, that, that he wore the garment with the tassels, uh, apparently, and she, she thought, if I can just lay hold of them. Now, there are 613 knots in the tassels that are worn, at least this is what I've been told, tassels that are worn by modern Jews. I don't know that there were 613 knots, but the knots represent, and I imagine they represented at the time of Christ, the knots represent the law, the, the Torah, the 613 commandments of the law of Moses. And she lays hold of this symbol of the law, Certainly, at the time of Christ, it would have been in obedience to the law that Jesus wore these tassels. Um, she grabs one of the tassels because there's healing in the tassels of the Messiah. So uh, <clears throat> Jesus said, uh, power's gone out from me. Who's touched me? Well, look, they're pushing around you. It's fascinating that Jesus had to ask who touched him, but he knew someone had touched him because power had gone out from him. This is very hard for us to understand that Jesus did not immediately know everything. Remember that he was always the second person of the Blessed Trinity. He was always that person of the Trinity, constitutive of the God who is love. God is love. God is not knowledge. God is not power. He has all knowledge. He has all power. But he is love. Jesus never ceased to be in that relationship, which is God the family which is God. But he, we read in Philippians, the second chapter, that he laid the rights and privileges of God on the throne of heaven. It says he took them off as if a garment. And he only, he chose only, though he could have known everything instantly being God, he chose only to know what the Father was pleased to tell him. This is why Jesus seems to not know things. He chooses not to know them, to be utterly dependent on his Father. He was like us in all things but sin. All things. Okay, let's move along. Well, the woman, realizing what had happened, came into fear and trembling, and she said, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be cured. So then he gets to the synagogue's official's house, and, and they say, Your daughter's died. Why trouble the rabbi any longer? And Jesus said, Don't be afraid. Just have faith. He didn't allow anyone to accompany him inside except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And uh, there are people weeping and wailing loudly. They, they actually would hire professional mourners. Uh, this is, I think, still done in certain places. Uh, so the child's not dead but asleep. That's interesting that, that this kid, there was no pulse and no breathing, but Jesus talked about her as being asleep. 
we don't really believe in death. Uh, we fall asleep in death and wake up to the vision of the Lord. Well, moving along here. To me, the most beautiful part of this passage is he comes into the room, takes the child's hand and says, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. A girl, the child of 12, arose immediately and walked around. They were astounded, and he said, no one should know this, and give her something to eat. Isn't that sweet? He, he was worried she must be hungry. Uh, um, why did he say, don't tell anyone? Because he was not ready to be revealed, but he did this out of deep compassion. That's how I interpreted it. It's, it's called the Messianic Secret, especially in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus often says, don't tell anybody I did this. Now, let's look at these readings, this, this whole thing together. The thing that ties it together is the law. The, the woman with the hemorrhage touched the, the hem of his garment, signifying the law. He was an observer of the law. Well, he's, he's disobeying the law in, in two counts. This woman is, has a hemorrhage of blood. And is probably a Gentile to boot. For him to have anything to do with her, to allow her to touch him, makes him unclean. And to be in the presence of death, a dead body, makes him unclean. And he said, don't worry about it. She's not dead. She's asleep. I'm not violating the law because death isn't real. Uh, you see, the number 12, the woman had the hemorrhage for 12 years. And the girl was about 12 years old. 12 is about government. Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark, we see, is talking about himself as Lord of the Sabbath. And, and he, it, it's about Jesus being God, that Jesus is claiming ultimate government. The high point of the Gospel of Mark is not the resurrection, it's when the centurion says, truly, this was the Son of God. The gospel starts out as the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And the center point is when he walks across the water and he meant to pass them by. To pass by is a biblical cliche for manifesting one's divinity. Um, this gospel is, is magnificent. Uh, this is, Jesus is saying, <laughs> I'm the one who gave the law. How did Moses get the law? The finger of God wrote on tablets of stone. Jesus is the finger of God. If, uh, if your own cast out demons, uh, uh, who do I cast them out by? You know that this is done by the finger of God. Jesus is the finger of God, the hand of God that set the stars to spinning, that wrote on the wall uh, in, in uh, Belshazzar's feast, uh, the finger of God, which wrote the law. This is, this is what's going on here. He is the government of God. Uh, that's, I, I think that's the, the, the importance of the number 12 here. Well, let's go to the first reading and oh, I don't know that I have time to do it justice, but you know, the story that, uh, poor David had just, uh, had a terrible time of it. Uh, and this is much abbreviated. Uh, this this uh, a whole chapter that you, you look at the at the heading at the USCCB site. Well, remember David is fleeing uh, from his son Absalom, who's who's trying to overthrow him, 
and uh, David divided his troops in three ways, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, um, you know, he says that uh, um, uh, it's kind of the battle plan is complicated. I don't want to go into that. But in verse 5 of, of chapter 18 of Second Samuel, the king gave this command to Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, Be gentle with young Absalom for my sake. All the soldiers heard as the king gave commands to the various leaders with regard to Absalom. So David's army took the field against Israel, and a battle was fought in the forest named Mahanaim. So the forces of Israel defeated by David's servants, and the casualties were heavy, 20,000 men. Um, the battle spread out over the region, and the forest consumed more combatants that day than did the sword. Well, then we come to the reading. Absalom, who was, uh, he was gorgeous. He had long, flowing hair and was rather taken with himself. Well, Absalom is fleeing, and he's on a mule, and uh, the mule went under the branches of, of well, it's a terebinth, but it, it, it's kind of a scrub oak. His hair got caught in the tree, and he was hanging there. And uh, someone told uh, Joab, I saw him hanging there. Well, Joab goes up. Uh, he, well, he says, why didn't you kill him? And and the man said, I wouldn't kill him. This king said, no. Uh, um, well, I won't waste time with this way. Joab goes, and he kills Absalom. And David is sitting there by the by the city gate waiting for news. And... Uh, um, a runner comes and says, you've won the battle, Absalom is dead. And and David just loses it. And he, he says, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son. This was the son who wanted to kill his father. David is a man after God's own heart. And this is part of it, that that David not only forgave Absalom, but he mourned for him and loved him after what he had done. And so it is with God. God mourns for us after what we've done to him. You know, and, and uh, I think this is, this is a very important thing. Uh, um, well, Joab, the general, was told the king was weeping and mourning for Absalom. The day's victory was turned into mourning for the whole army. And he said, David, get it together. You know, that, that you're, 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 your mourning is demoralizing the people who supported you. Uh, I think that, that um, Joab was just tough as nails. And, uh, uh, well, uh, uh, don't do that. They say that your men save your lives, and the lives of your wives and concubines. They put you, all, you put all your servants to shame today by loving those who hate you and hating those who love you. This is past in the text, past the reading. Uh, so now get up, go out and speak kindly to your servants. So the king got up and sat at the gate and the king is sitting at the gate. They came into his presence. And so he thanked them for their service. Um, the king, uh, so uh, he did his job all the time, uh, uh, brokenhearted. So, all right. I, it's just, this is just a breath. To me, the story of, of David is, is one of the most wonderful stories in scripture and one of the saddest. Um, 
this poor old man loved this son who wanted to kill him. And so it is that God loves us. All right, we're going we're gonna to go to a break. We'll come back with letters. And, uh, and of course, the phones will be opened at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. Today, we'd like to thank Vincent, who's listening in California, for donating his 1971 Chevy El Camino. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. piece of music about oh my son absalom which it's pretty serious music um yeah and uh i suppose that's appropriate well all that said let us now go to letters i got a letter from um uh, enrique and and um ah enrique if you're listening hello i haven't heard from you in quite a while hope you're well um the uh uh, let's see here. In today's first reading, that uh, he's reminded of the the prodigal son. The father, in this case, David, waits at the gate for his son. Now, Absalom doesn't return in this story because he's, he has not repented. He's been killed. But in the story of the prodigal son, Absalom does return. That's really interesting. Um, uh, the father runs toward the returning Absalom. Uh, um, th- there's a lot of uh, parallels here. That's interesting, Enrique. We are all potentially Epsilon, the son who rebelled against the father, and have been dead and far from him. And coming to repentance, we are now, in spite of our betrayal, alive. That is beautiful. Only the, Jude, oh, the Judas could have understood this. What a merciful father we have. You are absolutely right. You know, I was, um, a, a dear friend of mine uh, has an interesting spin on David. He, he mentioned, um, uh, that David's great sin may have been sloth. That he didn't, he wasn't a very attentive father. He let things go. Um, and that's where we came into the beginning of the book, uh, that, that the priest Eli, or Eli, let his sons Pincus and Hophni uh, rob from the temple. And he did nothing about it. And in a way, you read the story of David and his his children, they're a mess. And, you know, even this thing with Bathsheba that started the, the, the problem, um, David should have been out with his troops. I thought that was a very interesting thing that David had let his spiritual life slide in a kind of sloth. I thought that was very interesting. So thanks, Steve, for the, that interpretation. So, uh, but uh, you, that's a beautiful, beautiful comparison, Enrique. So good to hear from you. God bless. Let's see here. Um, this is, this is one, this is a little tough one. Uh, both of my parents have left the Catholic church. One joined a local mega church. Another became an agnostic. Can I choose new godparents? Why not? Especially if they're close relatives 
um, or someone who you, you know to be spiritual and who you have a good relationship, ask them to be your foster godparents. People can be, if you're going to have a foster parent, I don't see why you can't have a foster godparent. You know, uh, people who would take the responsibility to, to kind of nurture your spiritual life along with your parents. You can involve your parents in it, and I do not see why not. It wouldn't be official. You wouldn't get it registered in church or anything, but in a real way, yeah. Uh, I, I think that that's very legitimate. So uh, I just wanted to let you know that. Um, the um, that's that's I think that's a very legitimate thing. And and when you're choosing godparents, parents choose carefully. Don't choose just to make the relatives happy. Choose because this person will do a good job of it. Okay. My daughter asked me. We get from random homeschool mom. If Mary knew that Jesus was God, then why was she worried when Jesus got lost and was in the temple? Didn't Mary know that God can never get lost because God knows where everything and everyone is? Well, yes, I, I, I often think that, that her worry must have been quite different. Mary, our Blessed Mother, we believe, had the nature of, had human nature before the fall, which was absolute trust. Now, the scripture it says she was your father and I. Well, I'd have to look up the the text, but I believe it does say we that your father and I were concerned. She calls Joseph his father there because he is his his foster father. Um, Jesus was like us in all things but sin. Jesus suffered, though he was perfect in every way. Our blessed mother, because of the immaculate conception did not have to suffer in the way we did. When I suffer, I don't have a choice. I just suffer, and I don't do it very well. Our Blessed Mother, who was immaculately conceived, and our Lord Jesus, who was in that sense also immaculately conceived, that is conceived without the effects of original sin. He had a fully human nature, but it was the the the, the nature of Adam before the fall. But... He was like us in all things but sin. He allowed himself to suffer. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if our Blessed Mother made that same decision in solidarity with her divine son, that she accepted suffering when she didn't have to. Me, I got to suffer. I have no way around it. But our Blessed Mother and our, our, our Lord, they freely chose to suffer what human beings suffer. That's my theory on it. So she would have worried. And, and um uh, she wouldn't have been human in that sense. She wouldn't. She would not have been like us in all things but sin. You know that she. She. We believe that she was spared the the temptations. Uh, well, I could talk about the immaculate conception endlessly, but the immaculate conception I don't think means she didn't suffer. I, I think it means that she suffered freely and willingly for the sake of of her divine son and for our sake, um, uh, that, that, uh, she was free from the effects of the sin of Adam and Eve. And, uh, I always point out that while that isn't in the Bible, oh yes, it is that, that Adam and Eve were conceived without the effects of original sin. They were the first two people immaculately conceived. And certainly our Lord Jesus was immaculately conceived and our blessed mother, we believe from the text uh, when Gabriel announced that she was to be the mother of the Messiah, that 
the text strongly implies that she was in a state of grace uh, before the conception of Christ in her womb. So, uh, yeah, that's, I think that's why she would have been worried, because she, she made a, a commitment to allow suffering. That's my theory. I, I know we'll ask her when we get there. Moving along here. Um, let's see here. Okay. This is from Tom, if I can find it here, who um, was commenting on the uh, show from the 29th about the books of the Bible. Um, uh, the text from Constantinople is right, and also our right, our Lord, writers of the Greek Testament, did quote from Greek texts used in the Old Testament. First century saw Hebrew text and the Greek texts were being read by all. Um, so this is all kind of fun. Uh, the the um, uh, he seems to know what he's talking about more than I do. Um, so uh, Saint Jerome, loving all things Hebrew, was also in favor of not including the Greek text, but the Pope prevailed, and we have the Hebrew and Greek text which the the rebellion omitted. Um, now. Uh, the second question, Archbishop of Canterbury was granted the use of St. Mary Major in Rome to conduct an Anglican liturgy. Um, Vatican said no Catholic cleric was present. What do you think they used as the bread, and where did it come from, do you think? I have no idea. Um, I, I really have no idea if they provided. Uh, I believe that the, the Episcopalians and Anglicans use uh, the same bread and wine, the unleavened bread and the sacramental wine that we use. And, you know, that one is torn about these things. But on the other hand, um, uh, I think that that uh, we really do need to hear what the Lord says about, about um, he who's not against me is with me. And we do have differences. But on the other, other hand, I think that... Uh, how about this? Uh, I, I'm very fond of a book called The Hiding Place, which is by Corrie Ten Boom. She is a was a Dutch a member of the Dutch Resistance. Who, and she was not a young woman when she started uh, her work with the Resistance, and she smuggled Jews out of Holland and hid them, and she was eventually arrested and sent to a hideous concentration camp. And there, um, uh, uh, she and her sister, they were Dutch Reformed, conducted uh, Bible classes and prayer meetings in this hideous camp uh, 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 for women prisoners, many of whom were prostitutes, uh, uh, many of whom were, were uh, spies, and, and they were able to minister to people. And it's so beautiful that uh, when she talks about this, she talks about it being the most beautiful time in her life. You forget that she's in a concentration camp in an overcrowded, flea-bitten barracks with almost no food, Ravensbrück. And part of the beauty of it was that all of those people recognized the, the love that they had for the same Christ. And I think we really do have to think about that. You know, we're so anxious to, to divide and, um, you know, and, uh, I really dislike dishonest ecumenism. Oh, it's all the same. We're all the same. We're not. But honest ecumenism 
Look, I love Jesus, you love Jesus. If that's true, we got more in common than we don't. And the point of Cory Ten Boom was that she recognized the oneness, the underlying oneness of the faith, uh, the underlying oneness of the commitment to Christ, only in the worst circumstances. And, you know, I think we who are believers in Christ need to stick to our guns. We believe that this is what the Lord has said. But do you love Christ? Well, yes, he's my whole life. Now, there are a lot of people who use Christianity as just kind of a window dressing, and they don't love Christ. They love a good theological argument, but they don't love the Lord. And that's on the left, on the right, and everywhere in between. But when you find someone who genuinely loves Christ, I think you have to understand that they really are your brother or sister. And not, never, never to, to cover over or, or disregard the differences, but to understand that the love of Christ, if this person genuinely loves the Lord, not just the trappings of religion, and I say that aimed at everybody. There's sometimes that, that I love the trappings of religion, and I I get so caught up in it that I forget I'm doing this for Jesus. Um, if you're doing it for Jesus, then you're doing it well. But if you're doing it to make a political statement, if you're doing it to make a, uh, a theological or moral statement, then you're not doing it well. So I think that we, we really have to be sensitive to that, lest we grieve the Holy Spirit. If you're doing it for Jesus, you're doing it well. But, you know, God will purify our motives. All right, we are going to take a break. And the line, again, we got we got a lot of lines open at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. And the Bible she had been sick, sick so very long. But she heard my Jesus was passing by. If you have real estate or land you no longer need, consider the advantage of donating it to Relevant Radio. The process is easy. The tax advantages can be huge. Learn more at RelevantRadio.com slash property. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there's no other. Jesus is the way. It's true. You know, in all of the kerfuffles of the current age, the business of religion and the politics of the churches and all of these things, we are forgetting Jesus is the answer. And we need to, to acknowledge that um, no matter on uh, what edge of the discussion we are. Um, and I just want to say it again. If you're doing it for Jesus, you're doing a good job. If you're not doing it for Jesus... You're just doing it out of ill temper or a political agenda or, you know, and I mean that for all people involved, including myself. You know, if we're doing it for the wrong reason, we're doing it wrong. All right. Let us, that said, go to the word of the day. Now, I got a question from Anna Maria about the word liturgy. Uh, uh, her husband is taking class on sacraments. Uh, 
And she said she's having a hard time grasping the meaning of liturgy. My understanding is that Protestants, like evangelicals, don't have a liturgy. Well, they claim to be non-liturgical, but everybody's got a liturgy. I remember a Spanish prayer group I was at that the deacon would ceremoniously, toward the end of the meeting, um, look at his watch and say, Ha llegado la hora de la sanación. The time of healing has arrived. And you had a liturgy. You know, you started out with some praise songs and then some worship and then there might be a reading from the scripture and then a, a, a sermon a brief sermon unless i was giving it and then you had some time waiting on the lord and you listened to the lord and and then you would pray for the sick and then you would have a concluding prayer and get home before the babysitter had to leave that's a liturgy <clears throat> it's a it's a structure and people live by liturgies they live by structures but to look at liturgy more deeply, I think, is, is I want to look at the word more deeply. Um, the word liturgy is a Greek word, liturgos, which refers to a religious ceremony. And it literally means the work of the people. And I have heard progressive types described it as saying, yeah, it's the work of the people, and so we're the people, so we should be able to write our own liturgies. Liturgies are invariably structured. And the phrase work of the people really in Greek means the responsibility of the people. In other words, this is your job. The job of the people is to offer this, this to the gods. Greek liturgies were often, uh, uh, the word referred to, uh, uh, sacred dramas. Uh, the, the great classics of the Greek theater were liturgies and, uh, they, they acted out and commented on, uh, the myths on which the Greco-Roman culture was founded, uh, the Greek culture. You know, the, the Trojan War, the, the close thing they, the Greeks had to a Bible was the Iliad and the Odyssey, especially the Iliad. So these, these, these stories were reenacted, but you gotta remember, that I said this about a thousand times that the uh, um, uh, to be a, an actor in the Greek theater, you had to have a beautiful voice and a beautiful body. You could have the face of a goat uh, because no one saw your face. You wore a mask that was clearly uh, um, that's clearly Zeus, that's clearly Hera, that's clearly Achilles, that's clearly Agamemnon. You wore a mask. No one saw your face. And in the mask was a, 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 a what's the word? I can only think, I never think this, a, a, a bullhorn. That's what the word is. Uh, a megaphone that, that uh, so you could project your voice up to the, to the back of the theater in the cheap seats. The point I'm trying to make here is that Liturgy was not an expression of the actor. The actor was fulfilling a role. And in liturgy, you fulfill a sacred role. That's the word that, that uh, they chose, the early Christians chose, to represent what they were doing at, at, at Mass, at the sacrifice of the Mass. So um, uh, that's where the word liturgy comes from. So... Uh, the, the the structured worship, the representation, not representation, but representation of Calvary in an unbloody form with a strict structure is a liturgy, is our liturgy. But 
uh, people who claim not to have liturgies, they really do. They have a structured ceremony and they, you know, unless they're just sitting there like Quakers waiting on the Lord, even Quakers kind of get liturgical, the old fashioned Quakers. So I hope that helps Anna Maria. Uh, it's a good question. So, all right, let us now go to, that was our word of the day, liturgy. Let us now go to calls and the phones are quite open at 888-914-9149. Got a lot of room for calls. Hello. You talk. I'll listen. Joe, what can I do for you from Warwick, Rhode Island? Hello, Father. A question. Uh, would it be proper to say that St. Paul, the Twelve, as a matter of fact, the early church, had absolutely no concept, be good monotheists, had absolutely no concept of Jesus' divinity, let alone the triune God? No, I, I don't think you can say that. You look at St. Paul, uh, clearly saying in Philippians, the second chapter, which would have been written in the 50s, a mere 20 years after the event, uh, um, though he was uh, in the form of God, he did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. The, Paul, uh, a student of Gamaliel, clearly thought of Jesus as divine. And and uh, I think we see that consistently through scriptures. And, and in the Gospels, you know, these are early Christian documents. Uh, they... They quoted Jesus as saying, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, and even even when St. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, uh, uh, though he was, uh, or, oh, come on, brain, uh, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. A Jew hearing the word Lord, Kyrios in Greek, would have thought of the word Adonai, which is what Jews say when they see the sacred name, YHWH, they say, Adonai, which means Lord. So G Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, no one can say that Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, YHWH, except inspired by the Holy Spirit. So Paul clearly had a, an understanding of the divinity of Jesus. And John in his gospel clearly says that. And I believe that the gospel of Mark is written to prove that Jesus is uh, divine. Uh, so, and as for the Trinity, I think that it might not have been as, as clearly defined, but they really saw three persons in the, in, 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 in the oneness of God, the Father and the Son, very clearly. But a person is someone who speaks. And when the, 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 uh, the council, the first council of Jerusalem, uh, worried about whether the Gentiles should keep kosher law, they wrote, it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. They're clearly assigning personhood uh, to the Holy Spirit, and he's not just a concept, but a person to whom things can seem good. So I would say, no, they had, they had because Jesus told them these things, they had a very well-defined understanding of the divinity of Christ and the nature, the triune nature of God. That's how I read it, so I don't know if that answers your question, Joe. Very good. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, and I'm honored that you listen. Let's go to Tom from Apple Valley. Oh, I'm getting old. Where are the glasses? Apple Valley, Minnesota. Yep. There you go. What can I do for you, Tom? First off, God bless you. You do. You've done thank a lot you. for me and in my life. I came well, across you. on the Internet years ago 
a prayer by St. Gertrude that yes. was given to her by Jesus for the, the souls of purgatory, among others. Yeah. And it apparently has no backing from the Vatican, but um, I, I still think that it's a, a very real thing. And it says in some places that I've read that each time you say the prayer earnestly, that you can save a thousand souls from purgatory. So I'm okay with saving one soul, but if we can do a thousand, that's good with me. Does that mean that I pray it once per day, or can I pray that for hours on end and uh, hope that God knows my heart? Or well, know that God knows my heart. Well, I think you encounter God knowing knowing your heart. Well, the prayer says, Eternal Father, I offer you the most precious blood of your divine Son, Jesus, in union with the Masses said throughout the world today, for all the holy souls in purgatory, for sinners everywhere, and for sinners in the universal church. Is that the prayer to which you're referring? Yep, exactly. Yep. Yeah, it's a beautiful prayer. I say it every day, too. It's essentially the morning offering. Uh, um, I say that that's what I say when I get up. I, I, I say the morning offering, which is structured on the prayer of St. Gertrude. However, you have to understand that, uh, there's no, there is no evidence that St. Gertrude wrote it. Uh, and the idea that Christ promised to release a thousand souls from purgatory, there's no evidence that he ever said that to her. In fact is, um, uh, Pope Leo the Thirteenth um, uh, uh, said, "Don't think that way." Uh, Pope Leo the Thirteenth. Uh, um, well, the, the idea Christ promised to release souls from purgatory, despite the fact that the practices relative. I'm reading here to the alleged mm-hmm. promises to free one or more souls by the recitation of. You know, it's not part of the doctrine of faith. It's not part of the deposit of faith, and we have no evidence that that Jesus appeared to St. Gertrude to give it to her or that she wrote it. It was ascribed to her centuries later. That doesn't mean it's not a wonderful prayer. And as I said, I I say it every day. Yeah, keep saying it. Why not? It it can't hurt. it's good enough for you, it's good enough for me. Yeah, it's a beautiful prayer. But what what i got to say, though, that when you hold God to a contract— you know, well, your son so, said this to St. Gertrude, for us, there's no evidence, but uh, so you got to release these thousand souls. God doesn't have to do that. You know, he looks at the sincerity of heart of each of us, and prayer is never wasted. To pray for those in purgatory is to love them. So it's never wasted. So I, I would say, no, you know, don't ascribe magic to the prayer, and don't be disappointed if when you get to heaven, it's, it's, there weren't a thousand souls released every time you said the prayer, just... Say it with sincerity, honoring God as you do it. Hope that helps. Helps God a lot. Bless. God I'm, bless you. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Let us now go to uh, James, who's from the south side of Chicago. What can I do for you? Hey, Father. How are you doing? Um, Pretty good. Love Pretty your good. show. Thank you. Good, good. Uh, I was just calling because it was really interesting. Um, the Gospel and Mass was past Sunday. Uh, was Saint, uh, not Gospel, I'm sorry. The first reading was St. Paul. Um, where yes. he spoke of uh, it is better for between being married, it's better to be unmarried because a married man is uh, anxious how to please his wife, whereas an unmarried man is anxious how to please the Lord. Um, yes. I was wondering, is St. Paul there, is he talking about 
just for the clergy, or was did he believe that was better for that marriage wasn't a good vocation for the spiritual life? Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, um, uh, look at this. He doesn't actually in this passage say it's better. I should like you oh. to be free of anxieties. I mean, I don't see the word. An unmarried man is anxious about things. It sounds like you got kids, and that's pleasing to the Lord. <laughs> yeah, um, he's, uh, yeah, in the background, he's uh, ten months. Yeah, what 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 he's saying? It's interesting. He doesn't say that it's better. He says, "I'm telling you this for your benefit." Not to impose a restraint upon you, but for the sake of propriety and adherence to the Lord without distraction. Uh, the, the, no, let's let's look up and see what he means by propriety. I don't know. I bet that's a funny Greek word. Hold on. I, let me clicking away. See if I can beat the music. Okay. Okay. I think I. Oh, there's the music. I almost beat the music. All right. This is First Corinthians seven thirty-five. And we read that that um, uh, that um, uh, propriety. I don't know why they translate this as propriety. The word is symphoron. Uh, that uh, it it means something that is is profitable. You know that that what he's saying is now he's speaking this to people in Corinth. And remember, Corinth was a bit of a moral cesspool, uh, and that, that uh, Paul is saying to them, you know, that, you know, intimacy, even in the context of marriage, it, it, it's, it's quite a responsibility. Uh, um, but he doesn't forbid marriage, but he, he says, uh, you know, that, that it's, if you want to get full time into this, and I don't think he's saying it just for the clergy, uh, but he, he is saying that, that, that how about this? This is a way to look at it. Um, I remember my very charismatic youth in the Pentecostal groups that it was just a real tragedy that parents would go to prayer meetings eight, nine, ten nights a week <laughs> and their kids didn't even know them. And I, I tried my very best to tell people who were in the leadership of the, that movement your first commitment is not the charismatic movement. It isn't this this wonderful prayer group thing. Your first commitment is your sacramental commitment. And if you enter into a marriage, you better realize that's your first commitment. You can't be on every committee in church. You can't go bowling every night you want to. Your first commitment, the way that you fulfill your vows to the Lord, is in your marriage and in your parenting. And, oh, they did not want to hear that. They did not. Oh, sp I hope that helps a little. Uh, he's saying this is this is to make your life easy if you're going to be in church all the time. That's, I think, what he's saying. But speaking of church all the time, there's Drew. And Drew has a lovely wife. She really, he really does.